31. Found in Tahiti Irioi or Aralis societies, which were free love associations including in their number over half of the better sort of the inhabitants. The children begotten of these promiscuous unions were smothered at birth. Obscene conversations, indecent dances and frank and chastity on the part of girls and women were the attendant evils of these loose morals. Cook was sure that these societies greatly prevent the increase of the superior classes of people of which they are composed. Malthus reports a similar association in the Marianne Islands, distinguished by a similar name, devoted to a race suicide, everywhere in oceanic the marriage is unstable, and with few exceptions and chastity prevails. Stevenson thinks it chiefly accountable for the decline of population in the islands, however, in the detailed taboos laid upon women in Fiji, Marquesas, and other Polynesian islands we had the survival of an early measure to increase reserve between the sexes. Long after regard for chastity has vanished, the constant pressure of population upon the limits of subsistence throughout Oceanica has occasioned a low valuation of human life. Among natural peoples the helpless suffer first. The native Hawaiians, though a good-natured folk, were relentless towards the aged, weak, sick, and insane. These were frequently stoned to death or allowed to perish of hunger. In Fiji, the aged are treated with such contempt that when decrepitude or illness threatens them, they beg their children to strangle them, unless the children anticipate the request, invade or a thought of the new Hebrides, old people are buried alive, and their passage to another world duly celebrated by a feast, however, in the Tonga Islands and in New Zealand, great respect and consideration are shown the aged as embodying experience, the harsher custom recalls an ancient law of Aegean CEOs, which, ordained that all persons over 60 years of age should be compelled to drink hemlock, in order that there might be sufficient food for the rest. Many customs of Oceanica can be understood only in the light of the small value attached to human life in this island world. The overpopulation which lies back of their colonization explains the human sacrifices in their religious orgies and funeral rites, as also the widespread practice of cannibalism. This can be traced in vestigial forms or as an occasional or habitual custom from one end of the Pacific to the other, from the Marquesas to New Guinea and from New Zealand to Hawaii, all Melanesia is tainted with it, and Micronesia is not above suspicion, the cause of this extensive practice, Stevenson attributes to the imminence of famine and the craving for flesh as food in these small islands, which are destitute of animals except fowls, dogs and hogs, in times of scarcity cannibalism threatens all, it strikes from within or without the clan, Ratzel leans to the same opinion. Captain Cook thought the motive of a good full meal of human flesh was often back of the constant warfare in New Zealand, and was sometimes the only alternative of death by hunger. Cannibalism was not habitual in the Tonga Islands, but became conspicuous during periods of famine. In faraway Tierra del Fuego, where a peculiarly harsh climate and the low cultural status of the natives combined to produce a frightful infant mortality and therefore to a repressed population. Cannibalism within the clan is indulged in only at the imperious dictate of midwinter hunger. The same thing is true in the nearby Chanos archipelago. These are the darker effects of an island habitat, the vices of its virtues. That same excessive pressure of population which gives rise to infanticide also stimulates agriculture, industry and trade. It develops ingenuity in making the most of local resources and finally leads to that widespread emigration and colonization which has made islanders the great distributors of culture. From Easter Isle to Java and from ancient Crete to modern England. Chapter Exide Plains. 
steppes and deserts anthropogeography has to do primarily with the forms and relief of the land, the relief of the seafloor influences man only indirectly, it does this by affecting the forms of the coast, by contributing to the action of tides in scouring out river estuaries, as on the flat beaches of Holland and England, by determining conditions for the abundant littoral life of the sea, the fisheries of the continental shelf which are factors in the food quest and the distribution of settlements, moreover, the ocean floor enters into the problem of laying telegraph cables, and thereby assumes a certain commercial and political importance. The name of the telegraph plateau of the North Atlantic, crossed by three cables, points to the relation between these and submarine relief. So also does the erratic path of the cable from southwestern Australia to South Africa via Keeling Island and Mauritius. Submarine reliefs have yet greater significance in their relation to the distribution of the human race over the whole Earth for what is now shallow sea may in geologically recent times have been dry land, on which primitive man crossed from continent to continent. It is vital to the theory of the Asiatic origin of the American Indian that in Miocene times a land bridge spanned the present shallows of Bering Sea. Hence the slight depth of this basin has the same biogeographical significance as that of the British seas, the waters of the Malay archipelago, and the Melanesian submarine platform. The impressive fact about Wallace's line is the depth of the narrow channel which it follows through Lombok and Macassar Straits and which, in recent geological times, defined the southeastern shore of Asia. In all these questions of former land connection, anthropogeography follows the lead of biogeography, whose deductions, based upon the dispersal of countless plant and animal forms, point to the paths of human distribution. The mean elevation of the continents above sea level indicates the average life conditions of their populations as dependent upon relief. The 10 10 meters 33 14 feet of Asia indicate its predominant highland character. The 330 meters 1080 feet representing the average height of Europe, and the 310 meters 1016 feet of Australia indicate the preponderance of lowlands. Nevertheless, anthropogeography rarely lends itself to a mathematical statement of physical conditions. Such a statement only obscures the facts. The 660 meters 2164 feet mean elevation of Africa indicates a relief higher than Europe, but gives no hint of the plateau character of the dark continent, in which lowlands and mountains are practically negligible features, while the almost identical figure 650 meters or 2133 feet for both North and South America is the average derived from extensive lowlands in close juxtaposition to high plateaus capped by lofty mountain ranges. Such mathematical generalizations indicate the general mass of the continental upheaval, but not the way this mass is divided into low and high reliefs. The method of anthropogeography is essentially analytical, and therefore finds little use for general orometric statements which may be valuable to the science of geomorphology with its radically different standpoint. For instance, geomorphology may calculate from all the dips and gaps in the crest of a mountain range the average height of its passes. Anthropogeography, on the other hand, distinguishes between the various passes according as they open lines of greater or less resistance to the historical movement across the mountain barriers. It finds that one deep breach in the mountain wall like the Mohawk Depression and Cumberland Gap in the Appalachian System, Truckee Pass in the Sierra Nevada and the Brenner in the Alps, has more far-reaching and persistent historical consequences than a dozen high-laid passes that only notch the crest. Pack trail, road and railroad seek the former, avoid the latter, one draws from a wide radius, while the other serves a restricted local need, therefore anthropogeography, 
instead of clumping the passes, sorts them out, and notes different relations in each. In continents and countries the anthropogeographer looks to see not what reliefs are present, but how they are distributed, whether highlands and lowlands appear in unbroken masses as in Asia, or alternate in close succession as in Western Europe, whether the transition from one to the other is abrupt as in Western South America, or gradual as in the United States. A simple and massive land structure lends the same trait of the simple and massive to every kind of historical movement because it collects the people into large groups and starts them moving in broad streams, as it were. This fact explains the historical preponderance of lowland peoples and especially of steppe nomads over the small, scattered groups inhabiting isolated mountain valleys. The island of Great Britain illustrates the same principle on a small scale in the turbid, dismembered history of independent Scotland, with its highlanders and lowlanders, its tribes and clans separated by mountains, gorges, straits and fjords, in contrast to the smoother, unified course of history in the more uniform England. Carl Ritter compares the dull uniformity of historical development and relief in Africa with the variegated assemblage of highlands and lowlands, nations and peoples, primitive societies and civilized states in the more stimulating environment of Asia. The chief features of mountain relief reappear on a large scale in the continents, which are simply big areas of upheaval lifted above sea level. The continents show therefore homologous regions of lowlands, uplands, plateaus and mountains, each district sustaining definite relations to the natural terrace above or below it, and displaying a history corresponding to that of its counterpart in some distant part of the world, due to a similarity of relations, this appears first in a specialization of products in each tier and hence in more or less economic interdependence, especially where civilization is advanced. The tendency of conquest to unite such obviously complementary districts is persistent, hence the central highland of Asia is fringed with low peripheral lands like Manchuria, China, India and Mesopotamia, into whose history it has repeatedly entered as a disturbing force. All the narrow Pacific districts of the Americas from Alaska to Patagonia are separated by the Cordilleras from the lowlands on the Atlantic face of the continents, all reveal in their history the common handicap arising from an overwhelming preponderance of plateau and mountain and a paucity of lowlands. Colombia, Ecuador and Peru have in the past century been stretching out their hands eastward to grasp sections of the bordering Amazon lowlands, where today is the world's great field of conflicting boundary claims child would follow its geographical destiny if it should supplement its high, serrated surface by the plateaus and lowlands of Bolivia, as Cyrus the Persian married the plateau of Iran to the plains of the Tigris and Euphrates, and Romulus joined the Alban hills to the alluvial fields of the Tiber, while watered lowlands invite expansion, ethnic, commercial and political, in them the whole range of historical movements meet few obstacles beyond the waters gathering in their runnels and the forests nourished in their rich soils limited to 200 meters 660 feet elevation. Lowlands develop no surface features beyond low hills and undulating swells of land, uniformity of life conditions, monotony of climate as of relief, except where grades of latitude intervene due chill or heat, an absence of natural boundaries, and constant encouragement to intercourse, are the anthropogeographic traits of lowlands, as opposed to the arresting, detaining grasp of mountains and highland valleys, small, isolated lowlands, like the mountain rim plains of Greece and the Aegean coast of Asia Minor, the Nile flood plain, Portugal, and Andalusia in Spain, may achieve precocious and short-lived historical importance, owing to the fertility of their alluvial soils, their character as naturally defined districts, 
and their advantageous maritime location, but while in these restricted lowlands the telling feature has been their barrier boundaries of desert, mountains and sea. The vast level plains of the earth have found their distinctive and lasting historical importance in the fact of their large and unbounded surface. Such plains have been both source and recipient of every form of historical movement, owing to their prevailing fitness for agriculture, trade and intercourse. They are favored regions for the final massaying of a sedentary population. The areas of greatest density of population in the world, harboring 150 or more to the square kilometer 385 to the square mile, are found in the lowlands of China, the alluvial plains of India, and similar level stretches in the Neapolitan Plain and Po Valley, the lowlands of France, Germany, Holland, Belgium, England and Scotland. Such a density is found in upland districts 662 to 1,000 feet, or 200 to 600 meters bordering agricultural lowlands, only where industries based upon mineral wealth cause a concentration of population. See maps pages 8, 9, 559. The level or undulating surface of extensive lowlands is not favorable to the early development of civilization. Not only do their wide extent and absence of barriers postpone the transition from nomadism to sedentary life, but their lack of contrasting environments and contrasted developments, which supplement and stimulate, puts chains upon progress. A flat, monotonous relief produces a monotonous existence, necessarily one-sided, needing a complement in upland or mountain. To the pioneer settlers in the lowlands of Missouri the Ozark Plateau was a boon because its streams furnished water power for much-needed saw and flour mills. Treeless Egypt even before 2500 BC depended upon the cedars of the Lebanon mountains for the construction of its ships, so that the conquest of Lebanon, begun by Thutmose and completed by Thutmose II, in about 1470 BC had a sound geographical basis. Similarly the exploitation of the copper, malachite, turquoise and lapis lazuli of Mount Sinai. Minerals not found in the Nile Plain, led the ancient Egyptians into extensive mining operations there before 3000 BC and resulted in the establishment of Egyptian political supremacy in 2900 BC as a measure to protect the mines against the depredations of the neighboring Bedouin tribes. Lowlands lack the distinctive advantages of highlands found in diversity of climate, water power, generally in more abundant forests and minerals. The latter are earlier discovered and worked in the tilted strata of mountains and uplands. Plain countries suffer particularly from a paucity of varied geographic conditions and of resulting contrasts in their population. Their national characters tend to be less richly endowed, their possibilities for development are blighted or retarded, because even racial differences are rapidly obliterated in the uniform geographic environment. A small diversified country like Crete, Great Britain, Italy, Portugal, Saxony, or Japan, is a geographical mulchum in parvo. The western half of Europe bears the same stamp, endowing each country and nation with marked individuality born of partial isolation and a varied combination of environment. The larger eastern half of the continent embraced in the plains of Poland and Russia shows monotony in every aspect of human life. This comes out anthropologically in the striking similarity of head form found everywhere north and east of the Carpathian Mountains except in the secluded districts of Lithuania and Crimea, which shelter remnants of distinct races. Over all this vast territory the range of cephalic variation is only five units or one-third that in the restricted but diversified territory of Western Europe. Italy, only one-eighteenth the size of European Russia, has a range of fifteen units, reflecting in the variety of its human types the diversity of its environment. 
in the plains geography makes for fusion. Russia shows this marked homogeneity, despite a motley collection of race ingredients which have entered into the makeup of the Russian people, without boundary or barrier. The country has stood wide open to invasion, but the intruders found no secluded corners where they could entrench themselves and preserve their national individuality. They dropped into a vast melting pot, which has succeeded in amalgamating the most diverse elements. The long-drawn Baltic North Sea plain of Europe shows the same power to fuse. Here is found a prevailing blonde, long-headed stock from the Gulf of Finland to the Somme River in France. Yet this natural boulevard has been a passway for races. Prehistoric evidences show that the dark, broad-headed Celtic folk once overspread this plain east to the Weser, it still tends to trickle down from the southern uplands into the Baltic lowland, and modify the Teutonic type along its southern margin throughout Germany. The Slavs in historic times reached as far west as the Weser, while the expansion of the Teutons has embraced the whole maritime plain from Brittany to the Finnish Gulf. Here it is difficult to draw an ethnic boundary on the basis of physical differences. The Eastern Prussians are Slavonized Teutons, and the adjacent Poles seem to be Teutonized Slavs, while the purest type of Leto-Lithuanian at the eastern corner of the Baltic coast approximates closely to the Anglo-Saxon type which sprang from the western corner. A similar amalgamation of races and peoples has taken place in the lowlands of England and Scotland, while diversity still lingers in the highlands. In the lowlands of Scotland, Picts in small numbers, Britons, Scots from Ireland, Angles, Frisians, Northmen and Danes have all been blended and assimilated in habits, customs and speech. This uniformity is advantageous to early development in a small plane, because of the juxtaposition of contrasted environments, but is stultifying to national life in an immense expanse of monotony like that of Russia. Here sameness leaves its stamp on everything. Language is differentiated with only two dialects, that of the great Russians of the north and the little Russians of the southern steppes who were so long exposed to Tartar influences. Most other languages of Europe, though confined to much smaller areas, show far greater diversity, while the Russian of Kazan or Archangel can converse readily with the citizen of Riga or St. Petersburg. Germans from Highland Bavaria and Swabia are scarcely intelligible to Prussian and Mecklenburger, and whereas Germany a few decades ago could count over a hundred different kinds of national dress or tract, Great Russia alone, with six times the area, had only a single type with perhaps a dozen slight variations. Leroy Bolia comments upon this eternal sameness. The cities are all alike, so are the peasants. In looks, habits, in mode of life, in no country do people resemble one another more, no other country is so free from political complexity. Those oppositions in type and character, which even yet we encounter in Italy and Spain, in France and Germany, the nation is made in the likeness of the country, it shows the same unity. We might say the same monotony, as the plains on which it dwells. The more flat and featureless a lowland island the more important become even the slightest surface irregularities which can draw faint dividing lines among the population. Here a gentle land swell, river, lake, forest, or water-soaked moor serves as boundary. Especially apparent is the differentiating influence of difference of soils, gravel and alluvium, sand and clay, chalk and more recent marine sediments emphasize small geographical differences throughout the North German lowland and its extension through Belgium and Holland, here various soils differentiate the distribution of population. In the Netherlands we find the Frisian element of the Dutch people inhabiting chiefly the clay soils and low fens of the west and northwest, the Saxon in the diluvial tracts of the east, and the Frankish in the river clays and diluvium of the south. 
all the types had maintained their differences of dialect, styles of houses, racial character, dress and custom. The only distinctive region in the great western lowland of France, which comprises over half of the country, is Brittany, individualized in its people and history by its peninsula form, its remote western location, and its infertile soil of primary rocks. Within the sedimentary trough of the Paris Basin, a slight cretation platform like the meadowland of perch 200 to 300 meters elevation introduces an area of thin population devoted to horse and cattle raising in close proximity to the teeming urban life of Paris. The eastern lowland of England also can be differentiated economically and historically chiefly according to differences of underlying rocks. Carboniferous, Triassic, Jurassic, Chalk, Boulder Clays, and Alluvium which also coincide often with slight variations of relief. In Russia the contrast between the glaciated surface of the north and the black mold belt of the south makes the only natural divisions of that vast country, unless we distinguish also the arid southeastern steppes on the basis of a purely climatic difference. See map page 484. The broad coastal plain of our South Atlantic states contains only low reliefs, but it is diversified by several soil belts which exert a definite control over the industries of the inhabitants, and thereby over the distribution of the Negro population. In Georgia, for instance, the rich alluvial soil of the swampy coast is devoted to the culture of rice and sea island cotton, and contains over 60% of Negroes in its population. This belt, which is only 25 miles wide, is succeeded inland by a broader zone of sandy pine barrens, where the proportion of Negroes drops to only 20 or 30%. Of the total, yet further inland is another fertile belt, devoted chiefly to the cultivation of upland cotton and harboring from 35 to over 60 percent of Negroes in its population. Alabama shows a similar stratification of soils and population from north to south over its level surface. Along the northern border of the state, the cereal belt coincides with the deep calcareous soil of the Tennessee River Valley, where Negroes constitute from 35 to 60 percent of the inhabitants. Next comes the mineral belt, covering the low foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. It contains the densest population of the state, less than 17%, of which is Negro. South of this is the broad cotton belt of various rich soils, chiefly deep black loam of the river bottoms, which stretches east and west across the state and includes over 60% of Negroes in its population. This is succeeded by the low, coastal timber belt marked by a decline in the quality of the soil and the proportion of Negro inhabitants. In the dead level of extensive plains even slight elevations are seized upon for special uses, or acquire peculiar significance. The Kurgans or burial mounds of the prehistoric inhabitants of Russia, often 20 to 50 feet high, serve today as watchtowers for herdsmen tending their flocks. Similarly the Bubus, inhabiting the flat grasslands of the French Congo between the Shari and Ubangi rivers, use the low knolls dotted over their country, probably old ant hills, as lookout points against raiders. The sand hills and ridges which border the southern edges of the North German lowland form districts sharply contrasted to the swampy, wooded depressions of the old deserted river valleys just to the north, early occupied by a German stock. They furnished the first German colonists to displace the primitive Slav population surviving in those unattractive, inaccessible regions. As seen in the Spreewald near Kapuz today, the boundless horizon which is unfavorable to a nascent people endows them in their belated maturity with the power of mastering large areas. Political expansion is the dominant characteristic of the peoples of the plains, 
Haxthausen observed that handicapped and retarded Russia commands every geographic condition and national trait necessary for virile and expansive political power. Muscovite expansion eastward across the lowlands of Europe and Asia is paralleled by the rapid spread of American settlement and dominion across the plains and prairies of the Mississippi Valley, and Hungarian domination of the wide Danubian levels from the foothills of the Austrian Alps to the far Carpathian watershed. It was the closely linked lowlands of the Seine and Loire which formed the core of political expansion and centralization in France. Nearly the whole northern lowland of Germany has been gradually absorbed by the Kingdom of Prussia which now comprises in its territory almost two-thirds of the total area of the empire. Prussian statesmen formulated the policy of German unification and colonial expansion, and to Prussia fell the hereditary headship of the empire. Lowland states tend to stretch out and out to boundaries which depend more upon the reach of the central authority than upon physical features. We have seen American settlement and dominion overleap one natural boundary after another between the Mississippi River and the Pacific. From 1804 to 1848, Russia in an equally short period has pushed forward its Asiatic frontier at a dozen points. Despite all barriers of desert and mountain, Argentina, blessed with extensive plains, fertile soil and temperate climate, which have served to augment its population both by natural increase and steady immigration one-fourth of its population is foreign, has expanded across the Rio Negro over the grasslands of the Patagonian Plain and thereby enlarged its area by 259.620 square miles since 1881. The statesman of the plains is a nature-made imperialist, he nurses wide territorial policies and draws his frontiers for the future. To him a far-flung battle line is significant only as a means to secure a far-flung boundary line. From these low, accessible plains of adequate rainfall, which at first encourage primitive nomadism but finally make it yield to sedentary life and to dense populations spreading their farms and cities farther and farther over the unresisting surface of the land. We turn to those boundless arid steppes and deserts which nature has made forever the homes of restless, ruthless peoples. Here quiescence is impossible. The Volker wandering is habitual. Migration is permanent. The only change is this eternal restlessness. While the people move, progress stands still. Everywhere the sun-scorched grasslands and waterless waste have drawn the deadline to the advance of indigenous civilization. They permit no accumulation of productive wealth beyond increasing flocks and herds, and limit even their growth by the food supply of scanty, scattered pasturage. The meager rainfall eliminates forests and there with a barrier to migrations, it also restricts vegetation to grasses, sedges and those forms which can survive a prolonged summer drought and require a short period of growth. The union of arid plains and steppe vegetation is based upon climate, and is therefore a widely distributed phenomenon. These plains, whether high or low, are found in their greatest extent in the dry trade wind belts, as in the deserts and steppes of Arabia, Persia, Sudan, the Sahara, South Africa and Central Australia, and in vast continental interiors, where the winds arrive robbed of their moisture in passing intervening highlands, as in the grasslands of our western plains the Llanos and Pampas of South America, and the steppes of Central Asia, but wherever they occur, whether in Argentina or Russian Turkestan or the higher plains of Mongolia and Tibet, they present the same general characteristics of land surface, climate, flora and fauna, and the same nomadic populations of pastoral or hunting tribes, in them the movement of peoples reaches its culminating point, permanent settlement its nil point, here the hunting savage makes the widest sweep in pursuit of buffalo or antelope, and pauses least to till a field, 
Here the pastoral nomad follows his systematic wandering in search of pasturage and his hardly less systematic campaigns of conquest. It is the vast area and wide distribution of these arid plains, combined with the mobility which they impose on native human life, that has lent them historical importance, and reproduced in all sections of the world that significant homologous relation of arid and well-watered districts. The grasslands of the old world developed historical importance only after the domestication of cattle, sheep, goats, asses, horses, camels and yaks. This step in progress resulted in the evolution of peoples who renounced the precarious subsistence of the chase and escaped the drudgery of agriculture, to devote themselves to pastoral life. It was possible only where domesticable animals were present, and where the intelligence of the native or the peculiar pressure exerted by environment suggested the change from a natural to an artificial basis of subsistence. Australia lacked the type of animal, though North America had the reindeer and buffalo, and South America the guanaco. Lama and alpaca, only the last two were domesticated in the Andean highlands, but as these were restricted to altitudes from 10.000 to 14.000 feet, where pasturage was limited, stock raising in primitive South America was nearly unadjunct to the sedentary agriculture of the high intermontane valleys, and never became the basis for pastoral nomadism on the grassy plains. However, when the Spaniards introduced horses and cattle into South America, the Indians and half-breeds of the Llanos and Pampas became regular pastoral nomads, known as Llaneros and Gauchos. They are a race of horsemen, wielding javelin and lasso and bola, living on meat, often on horse flesh like the ancient Huns, dwelling in leather tents made on a cane framework, like those of the modern Kyrgyz and medieval Tartars, dressed in cloaks of horse hide sewn together, and raiding the Argentinian frontier of white settlement for horses, sheep and cattle with the true marauding instinct of all nomads. Aridity is not the only climatic condition condemning a people to nomadic life. Excessive cold, producing the tundra wastes of the far north, has the same effect. Therefore, throughout Arctic Eurasia, from the Lap district of Norway to the inland Chukchis of eastern Siberia, we had a succession of Hyperborean peoples pasturing their herds of reindeer over the moss and lichen tundra, and supplementing their food supply with hunting and fishing. The reindeer Chukchis once confined themselves to their peninsula, so long as the grazing grounds were inexhausted, but they now range as far west as Yakutsk on the Lena River. The Orokons of the Kolimo River district in eastern Siberia, who live chiefly by tea, 